You're listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. The following audio is from the weekly gatherings of One Hope Church in Orlando, Florida. We pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen. I'll just start by sharing a little bit about myself and what my life looks like. So I have a, I have a young son, and he asked me a lot of why questions. That why question often is, why is it not working? And I'll tell him, well, because it's broken. And he'll ask me, why is it broken? I'll say, well, I'll look at it and I'll think, oh, I think it's because it's old. He's like, why is it old? And I'd love to give him the answer, like, everything gets old. But that's not good enough, because what comes after that? But why? And, you know, it becomes at that point a kind of a deeper kind of philosophical question. Why does everything get old? You know, he's a, he's a three-year-old, um, and I think there are solid age-appropriate answers to questions like that. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be the one to, to provide some of them and let him wrestle with those. But I think even as we move beyond the stage of being toddlers, we continue to ask that question. We continue to ask, why is it not working? Why is it broken? And we start to ask these questions about our bodies, about our relationships, about our work, about the community around us. And we, when we start to ask another question after we see everything around us actually breaks down, gets old, wears away, we start to ask, what will actually last? So, so how do we answer that, that underlying question? And, and really, how do we live with the answer? I think that's what our, past, our um, scripture today is going to really help us work with. So we're going to look at Psalm chapter 90, and we're going to um, gain some perspective on that question and uh, see how God invites his people to invest these fleeting, frail lives of ours into an eternal enterprise that he is building. So a little bit more about me. My name is um, Unduka Enemchuku, and I'm an elder candidate here at One Hope Church. Um, I'm here with my, my wife, Chinger, and my son, Chirika, is three years old. He's, he's with the kids. So let me go ahead and pray for us as we begin to, to look into the scripture. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for this time to gather together. Uh, we thank you for being present to receive our questions, even our deepest, hardest questions, the ones that our very bodies and souls are asking. And we thank you that you are so gracious as to provide answers and to give us a community in which to wrestle with those answers. So I do pray that you would reveal yourself, reveal a way forward for us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, just to put in context to where we are, you know, it's, here's, here we are at the beginning of the year, uh, but last summer we took some time to look at a few of the Psalms, and really our theme was looking at talking with God. And we were looking at talking with God through the Psalms, the, the words that the, the Psalms provide for talking to God in terms of when we want to praise, when we want to confess, when we want to seek after him. And today, um, as, as Justin is taking a, a break from preaching here at the start of the year, uh, we're going to look at a unique psalm that teaches how to talk to God about um, our suffering and our mortality. So just to give you context in the, in the book of Psalms and, uh, and where we are, um, psalm, the psalms are broken into five books, and um, Psalm 90 opens the fourth of those, of, of those five books. Um, and the, the book itself is actually compiled as a prayer book for exiles. It was compiled at a time when the people of Israel were actually 
not settling their own land, not ruling themselves, but often, but largely scattered in other countries. And they were, they had this compilation of Psalms to kind of help them cry out to God. And so here we are by book four, a lot of the Psalms that started perhaps with very lofty ideas have really moved into a place of really lament and really talking about how much their reality has fallen short of all that they hoped for. And most of these have been authored by David, a few other authors, um, even Solomon. And um, at this point at Psalm 90, um, up to the mic steps Moses. This is the only Psalm attributed to him, though he's kind of this towering figure in Jewish religious life and in their history. He's, um, he's actually the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible that they call the law. And he was the one who led them out of their, their first kind of major captivity when they were in Egypt. So, so my approach to walk through the Psalm, I'm actually gonna use moments from Moses' life to see if we can kind of illustrate some of the concepts that he's, he's bringing to us in this Psalm. So before I read, I'll actually um, just mention that we know it's um, a, a prayer. We know that it's, that it's from Moses and that it's a prayer because that's kind of the subtitle you might see if you're reading it in your Bible. So this is um, Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Let's look at verses one and two. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So just pausing there, looking at this opening, we see Moses kind of setting, setting a tone and establishing, uh, I'll show you, establishing really a, a structure by which he's going to communicate through this whole prayer to God. Um, first of all, again, it's a prayer. He addresses the Lord. This the ultimate audience of this, this psalm is, is the Lord God himself. And you'll see that he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. I'll, I'll ask you to pay attention to that as we go through. You will not see I, me, or my in any of this. You'll see us, we, our throughout. And even just the opening statement, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. It's a kind of emphatic acknowledgement of the testimony he's gonna give about God is really this collective testimony through generations that has been demonstrated. But um, as we go through, you'll, as we go through the rest of the psalm, it may seem like we're repeating ourselves a lot. We're saying the kind of same things in different ways. But um, this is actually an intentional structure called a chiastic structure, um, kind of thought mirroring. You know, a lot of things will be repeated, but in slightly different ways to help build something a bit larger. And I'll actually show you a display here of, um, that, of that structure. Um, again, call it chiastic structure because you can assemble it like this as an X. And so the idea is that concept A which is the beginning, is followed by a concept B, then mirrored by a concept B within, and then a concept A prime kind of close up the whole statement. So let's look at this one. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. You can see how this, you can see how then he goes on to say, before the mountains were brought forth. That's one way of looking at God's eternalness in the sense of ge geology. You know, he's the one who was there before the world, earth was, um, before the mountains were, were formed. And another way of saying that, he formed the earth and the world. He brought these forth. And then finally, to kind of close it up, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We had just talked about him being a dwelling place to all generations. And finally, we say everlasting to everlasting. So in a statement here, in just two verses, we learn that the Lord is eternal, again, spanning geological and generational scales. We say the Lord is the creator. He's the one who has originated and formed the earth and all the things that we, we experience in the world. 
And together we see that the Lord is the everlasting God, the dwelling place for his people, Israel. So to Moses' life, Moses first met God when he was uh, serving as as a shepherd and he saw this bush that was burning but not being consumed. And out of this bush, God begins to speak to him. And do you remember the way that God sort of said who he is? He said, I am. God defined himself in a sense that no point of reference, right? Defined himself as this always been, always will be person. And later, as Moses would pen the book of Genesis, the Lord is revealing to him the process by which he created everything. So Moses is speaking from something he's kind of seen in in a sense, in in defining who God is. Let's continue in verses three through six. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. So again, I think you see that, that thought mirror completely on display. No man returning to dust, the flower, the, the grass fading and withering. A thousand years versus yesterday. You see the idea of a watch in the night and a dream. So I think the message is, is I think, pretty, pretty strong here. You know, God is eternal and mankind is not. So we learn a little bit about God, but now we're learning about ourselves. We're learning that we're bound in time, that we're born, but then we wither back into dust. And it doesn't just happen. You know, God actually mediates this. God is returning us back to dust. So the question, of course, that raises from that is why? Why is God in the business of returning man to dust? And I think verse 3 actually provides a really good clue. You know, again, just thinking about our Bibles and the, what Moses has written, that phrase, return to the dust, children of man. You know, children of what man? You know, I think it's a reference. Let's look at, Let's look at um, Moses' life again. You know, right after d- detailing the glorious work of creation in the first two chapters of Genesis, Moses records this kind of cataclysmic tragedy. And it echoes through every generation. Um, we call it the fall of man. When Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God and do their own thing, let's look at what the consequences were. After issuing a curse on the serpent, a specific curse on Eve, the curse upon Adam is kind of generalized to mankind, generalized to mankind's work and all of creation. And it ends with, with these words, which I don't have up, but I'll read them for you in Genesis 3.19. It says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Our work will be toil. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so as we, as we continue through the passage, I think we'll see a confirmation that and Moses is referring to us returning to dust as a, as a um, consequence of this curse that was placed on mankind. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So again, that reference 
to that to the curse that causes all mankind to return to dust. I think it's on full display here. We're under a death sentence because of God's wrath. And the question we can ask is, um, like, if we, if we start to question, like, why, why is this all, we all have to deal with this? Again, the curse was placed on Adam, but that curse was for all mankind, as we see it the way it was, it was described. And so you could say that we are, we are sinners, we're under God's wrath by our nature. But additionally, when we look at verse 8, we can see that we're also sinners by choice. It says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. The sense of secret is something we know and we hope others don't know. So there's a sense in which we understand we own this on some level. That each of us is responsible for our sin and, and ultimately justly under God's wrath. But, but death, isn't, is, death is simply the, the end result of this curse. Life itself is full of toil and conflict. You can see here, all our days pass away under your wrath. You know, um, you see here the, the sense of um, life being defined as 70 years or maybe 80 if you have the strength. You know, it's interesting in our culture, in a um, modern kind of developed country, you could actually say, oh, maybe that's somewhat accurate. You know, that hasn't always been the case throughout history. It's not the case throughout the world. But I think a better sense to look at this is, you know, if, if life was 70 years old, was 70 years, you add 10 more, you don't get that much better. You just get 10 more years of toil and strife because their span is but toil and trouble and they're soon gone anyway. So I think we're seeing here you know, the, the impact of sin, the reality of wrath on, on, on everything. The, um, in Genesis 3, we saw disintegration of, of relationships, reproduction, work, creation all around us. And so, again, as we look at Moses' life, as, as he can kind of vouch for these things, some commentators think this prayer was penned at a time when he was leading the people from Egypt toward the promised land. And there's an event in which the people are told to go forth and take the promised land. Go, it's yours. God, I'm with you, God says. But the people say, no way, we can't do this. Those people will consume us. The land itself will consume us. We're not going to go. And God's response to this rebellion is to... Um, to basically sentence the entire generation of adults at that point to never enter the promised land. Basically, a whole generation would die in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years. And so Moses perhaps can, can and Moses himself, you know, would experience his own moment of rebellion that would lead to a judgment in which he's not going to enter either. And so you can kind of see him living with God's wrath being poured out gradually over a whole generation that he's leading. And the exiles themselves who are receiving these psalms to pray could relate to this futility. You know, they've received all these promises of a kingdom and they, it was established and they've all seen it fall apart. And now they're here at a distance, away from their home, and just wondering, how can they live in this futility? So we come to verse 11. And Moses asks, Who considers the power of your anger? in your wrath according to the fear of you. I'll just let us sit with that for a second. And I'll follow with this question. How does the reality of God's wrath fall on you? 
I, I thought as I was going through studying this and looking at, at, at speaking on it today, I couldn't really escape the fact that wrath is a big theme in this passage. You know, it's just coming at us over and over again. Extremely sobering section of this, of this passage. And so I was just thinking through, um, let's, let's take some time and actually, and actually wrestle with, with wrath. And I just thought about four, four responses to wrath. There could be many more. Now let's go, go, go through very quickly. Um, first of all, I think, I think denial is one of them. I think that's one that, that we see out there. You know, even um, if we look at kind of the biblical history, you know, at the early, in early in the church, you know, you have these apostles and, and people preaching, saying that, you know, this Jesus who, who died and who was raised and who was ascended, he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. It didn't take long before people started to say, hey, where's this Jesus? You said he's coming. Start to mock and go about their lives. So there is this sense, there's this way of dealing with wrath, being like, no, this is not, this is not something to take seriously. Um, you know, I'm going to eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. You know, we, we, we all get that we die, but I'm not going to take the idea that this is because of God's wrath. I'm not going to take the idea that I'll see God one day as something to take seriously. Another one, I think, is defiance. I think this one is a response of sort of raging against this reality. And I think... Uh, through the scripture, we see this, um, you know, prophets are often sent to a king or someone in authority to tell them, hey, your, your conduct is not good. And what happens to that prophet? The king kills them, right? They, they just want to silence this idea that they're under God's judgment in any way or another. This idea that I'm the captain of this ship, I dare you to come and sink it. I think another one is um, discomfort. I think a lot of us live in this one. This idea that will affirm this reality that you know, we live under God's wrath, but we prefer to avoid talking about it. You know, there's a sense in which we'd like to sugarcoat some of these things. And I think when we look through the scripture, we see, see prophets, again, who are sent to people who are going to be really upset about what they're saying as they pronounce God's truth and judgment. And you see places where God um, encourages them and tells them, hey, I'll be with you. Don't shy away from talking about this. So I think there is a sense of discomfort in which we'd rather avoid and finally, I think there's a response that's despair, where we just say, just have this feeling that this is just too much. I think we look at situations where we're, um, we're suffering from disease, or we're seeing disintegration around us, and sometimes it seems like that's all there is. I can uh, think about situations where perhaps I talk to an old friend after a long time, and, and they share the hard news that um, they're going through a divorce. And, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm processing that and, and starting to grieve myself, I call another old friend, and I hear they went through a divorce about six months ago. And you start to get this feeling that's creeping in on you, like everything around me is falling apart. And so I think there is a sense in which we respond sometimes in despair, just withering under the weight of God's wrath. Let's look at Moses' life. There's a time uh, we look at in Exodus 19 and 20 where God comes to Mount Sinai to meet with the people of Israel. Now, people are camped around the mountain, and the mountain, as God comes, is covered in thunder and smoke and lightning, and there's this trumpet blast that keeps going on. And the people were utterly terrified and just pleaded with Moses, hey, Moses, you, you can go and talk to God and everything, but do not let God talk to us because we will die. I think there was that sense of real despair and kind of seeing God's power and knowing who they are versus God. But 
But back to, back to the question, verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I look at Moses in that situation. Moses didn't ignore it. He didn't rage against it. He didn't hide from it. He didn't crumble under it. He drew near. Moses went up that mountain. And so when we get to verse 12, we look at the way Moses prayed as he considered the wrath of God. He said, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So in light of that question, like who considers the power of your anger, the, the, the wrath, the fear that is due you, the answer is none of us. So what can we say? We could simply ask God to teach us. This, such, thus the proper response to God's wrath is humility. It's the only thing that makes sense, to fear the Lord. If you look at um, Proverbs, Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is actually living in reality as mankind under God's wrath. This is wisdom. Unlike God, our days are limited. We have to number them. And so as I think about what it means um, to, to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom, I think this is telling us to give each one its proper consideration and weight. Like I think about a, think about a teacher in a classroom who has 20 students. It'd be one thing for the teacher to just command, hey, student, come to the board and, and talk to me about this. Or student, lead the line today as we're going out of the classroom. Student, go and do this. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't like a teacher like that. That teacher wouldn't really be the best for your kids. You want a teacher who's going to look at each student and understand their needs and their capabilities and give them an assignment that's appropriate, to give them development that will help them to reach their, their place. In the same way, we number our days because we know they're limited. So instead of treating them all the same as just a blur or treating each one as if it has to be the ultimate one, instead, what if we just treat each one according to its proper weight, according to what God tells us? God, teach us to number our days. Teach us to weigh each day properly. And doing this daily is living in the fear of God. It's living according to the reality that we, are, that we find ourselves in. And um, this, this becomes a heart of wisdom as it becomes a way of life, this wisdom, this idea of living according to the reality that we're limited before God, and that God is the one who can teach us how to live daily, this, becomes, this begins to make wisdom the core of our corporate being. So looking at Moses' life again, in, um, in, in the, the book of Numbers, Moses is described as the meekest or humblest man who ever lived on the face of the earth. But even he had to learn this. If you look at uh, his, his early days um, in Exodus 2, he, he kills an Egyptian because he went to visit his people. He saw their suffering and he wanted to deliver them. So he rose up and killed this Egyptian and tried to hide it. So he was trying to deliver his people in his own way, in his own timing. But he had to actually learn what is God doing in this time? What is he doing with us at this time in history? So teach us a number of our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let's continue through verse 13. It says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. You know, this cry actually flew off the page to me as, as Moses was so restrained, so humble, and so uh, respectful up this, to this time in this song. Here's Moses crying out saying, return, O Lord, 
How long? And I realized I could really relate to this. I think about the end of the day, when and most days end for me and my wife sitting down to pray before we go to sleep. And I usually go first, but there's a period of time which I'm just there, silent, just trying to figure out what to make of this day that just happened. Often I'm just wanting to, I'm just wanting to cry out something like this. How long? How long is it going to be like this? How long is this war going to last? How long is this broken system going to be in place? How long am I going to be so lonely? How long am I going to be waiting for a spouse? How long am I going to be waiting for a friend? How long am I going to be waiting for a child? How long will I be searching for this job? How long will I watch the people I love self-destruct? How long will I continue to do things that cause me so much shame? So I think there's this reality and living in this, in this reality, in this world, in the way it is, there's just this, this crying out, this desire. But what does Moses ask for here? Moses asks for him to have pity on your servants. A little detail here. At the beginning, he refers to the Lord, just Lord, like ruler, like master. But here he refers to the Lord in a way that, in a, in a Hebrew term for, for God, the way he revealed himself to Israel exclusively. So it's a little bit more intimate way he's talking about them. He says, have pity on your servants, not just on any humans, but the people you've called and given a purpose in this world. You revealed yourself to us for a purpose, to do something, to be the people among whom you'll dwell, and you'll, through us you'll show the world who you are. So Moses went up that mountain, And he came down with a covenant, this framework by which God would actually dwell with his people, framework by which God would forgive their sins and, get, and create a situation where he could actually dwell, the eternal God with finite people, the perfect holy God with sinful people. So he's appealing to this reality that God actually desires to be with, to be with his people, to treat them as his servants. And we can watch this build as we go into verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Something's coming alive in Moses. You know, his, his hopes are rising from just a morning, just a good morning, to days, to years, to generations. Whereas people were dust, just like a dream, just withering grass. Now he's talking about generations of servants who would be witnesses to his glorious power. And as he comes to verse 17, he says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Whereas Moses started describing life under God's wrath, God, um, Moses appeals now for life under God's favor. And he ends this with this repetition of establish the work of our hands. So I think this needs some attention as we wrap up here. What is the work of our hands? As I was kind of wrestling with this, I was also asking the question, what does that mean for it to be established? So the work of our hands here isn't simply just occupation, not just your day job or your labors. In this usage, it's actually referring to an enterprise or an endeavor, an undertaking. And again, I mentioned he referred to themselves as servants of God. Their enterprise, their undertaking is to be the people in the world who would represent God to the whole world. That's their enterprise. God established this enterprise. 
What does it need to be established? You know, Moses is saying here, you know, give us as many days of good as you've given us evil. But he can't be simply asking for 10 more years. He's not asking for another 40 or 80 years. That wouldn't be enough. We're talking about the God who said he's the dwelling place for all generations. I think he's asking really for God to do this thing, to make this enterprise, to make this dwelling place for all generations actually happen. In spite of the fact that they're in the wilderness, in spite of the fact that they know that they're dying, for these exiles, in spite of the fact that you're right now exiled from your country, God, actually do this thing that you set out to do with us. And so just to, to kind of bring the, the passage to a close and the way it's structured, before we start talking about how we're going to live this out, just to, to show you the other side of this in terms of the structure, we talked about you know, verse 1 and 2 being this chiastic structure that sort of mirrors something um, a few times so that we can kind of get it. As you look through this passage, you actually see the entire passage sort of structured this way. We start with the Lord, the one who makes mountains, the one who makes the world, the one who makes man. He's the everlasting God. He's eternal. Then we see this horrible decline into, in, under his wrath in which we all return to the dust because of our sin. And then from there, somehow the hope of God being merciful, begins to raise up this hope for, for good days to come, for God to actually establish something. And then finally, when we're asking, what's the question? What is this enterprise? What is this work of our hands? We can answer the question that this is the original thing, for God to be our dwelling place for all generations, that we would be part of something eternal. I don't know if the diagram is able to describe it. We sometimes have issues. But in any case, you could see the mirroring there from beginning to the end. So that's all good and nice. But the question is, I mean, remember, this is, this is a prayer. Moses is asking for this, but will God answer this prayer? And I think the rest of the scripture gives you an emphatic yes. God will answer this prayer. I think that's what the rest of the scripture is. So, as Moses was ending his time, kind of leading these people, he was, he was knowing he was going to die soon. He was kind of giving them the charge for the, rest of, um, for the rest of the journey into taking the promised land, establishing the nation, being this people who would be God's dwelling place. He referred to another prophet that was to come. He says, another one will rise up among, from among you, and, and you'll need to listen to him. And so we look through the, the whole course of Scripture, and we see, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this in Jesus himself. You know, we look at Adam at the beginning of things as one man who came from dust, whose sin caused all of us to fall into wrath and return to dust. And you see, kind of mirroring this, you see a man come from heaven, live in our flesh, and do the work that causes us all to be able to live eternally. And that is to say that Jesus came, he lived, he died on a cross to take the wrath of God upon himself, so that all who would believe in him could see God's wrath turned away and his favor laid upon them for eternal life with him. And so as we look to respond to this, first of all, if you're, if you're a person who has not come to trust in Jesus as your hope for eternity, 
First thing is to see this, to see this exchange in which God takes his wrath upon his son and gives you his favor. To see that as the ultimate wisdom of God. In that way, in receiving Christ, you become part of this family. You become part of this, this multi-generational, multi-ethnic, global dwelling place for God. But for us, for, for the church, for those people who have become part of that family, what do we do with this? I think, first of all, I think we begin to see ourselves in terms of that we, us, our, that this passage emphasized so much. That we see ourselves as part of of people that he's forging to be his dwelling place. And together, as a people awaiting our ultimate deliverance from God's wrath, let's rejoice in that he's actually, um, he's actually given us his enterprise, that he's establishing in us and for us. Together, let's soberly consider the real consequences of God's wrath in the world around us. And together, let's seek wisdom for this day in this place where we find ourselves, with the opportunities presented to us, with the decisions facing us as a people, and let's seek God's wisdom and seek to live it out. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for, for seeing us where we are, for seeing us as people who are daily experiencing the reality of our finiteness, of the reality that things are broken around us and broken within us. But God, I thank you for your kindness and your mercy by which you give us a hope. Hope that is is ultimately displayed in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of, of Jesus Christ. And I thank you, God, for your willingness to live among us by your spirit, to form us into a family who together will seek after you and who together will take on the mantle of investing ourselves in this enterprise you're creating that's going to last forever. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the One Hope Church podcast. We encourage you to share what you've heard in conversation with family, friends, classmates, and coworkers. To connect with us or learn more, visit wehaveonehope.com. 